In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Spear Factor Spearfishing Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Whitman. Today's special show is a live and in person with Mr. Matt Johnson. He is the podcast sponsor uh, of from Lineage Charters and also Captain Bly Spear Guns. Um, if you haven't checked out his guns, they're pretty impressive, uh, w- beautiful wood uh, woodworking on those things. And also with the Lineage Charters, he does multiple day trips out here locally, guaranteed to put you give you the best shot at some big fish um, doing multiple day charters. He's been on the water for like 40 years, and he sh- we were lucky enough to sh- have him share with us um, some of the tips and tricks that he uses to get on fish. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and happy diving. Don't forget, if you want to step up your spearfishing, go ahead and check out spearfishingmentor.com. There's spearfishing classes. One of them's for free. Give you a little bit of an idea of what to expect. If you were to purchase the master class, there's over five hours of information on there for you guys so be sure to check out spearfishingmentor.com now i'd like to thank our sponsor mr ted hardy of immersion freediving uh enter promo code spearfactor for 15 percent off uh on his 28 day freediving transformation course and uh, it's pretty awesome i've used it and i recommend it so you can find this course and the other courses ted puts out for us at freedivingsafety.com um, like I said, enter the promo code SPEARFACTOR for the discount. And thanks, Ted, for sponsoring the show. Our next sponsor is Hot Rod Spear Guns. Uh, Paul has offered us 10% discount with a promo code SPEARFACTOR. So thanks, Paul, for making badass guns and uh, providing a hookup for our listeners. And Chimera's Side Slip. So Chimera's Side Slip, you can purchase those at Chimera Spearfishing. That's K-I-M-E-R-A. And basically, I've talked about the side slip before in the show. It's kind of the benefits of a slip tip without worrying about breaking your tip, hunting around rocks. Uh, it replaces the flopper with a side slip. Uh, check it out more at the website. And if you use promo code SPEARFACTOR, all lowercase, at checkout, they'll give you 5% off. And if you'd like to uh, sponsor Spear Factor Podcast, feel free. Uh, you can go ahead and shoot me a note on the website, spearfactor.com. Thank you. 
welcome to Spirit Factor Spirit Fishing Podcast. Uh, we have Mr. Matt Johnson, um, colorful character here, in San Diego. What? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I would say uh, San Diego veteran in every sense of the word, um, fishing, boating, diving, um, making guns and surfing. all that stuff, surfing. Yeah. Um, so welcome to the show, Matt. Oh. Appreciate it. Thank you. Me. I'm glad we were able to link it up. We're here in my garage slash arts and crafts factory slash I don't know uh, child care workout know. room. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey. Food storage. Um, so yeah. So anyways, um, we were just BSing about shark situation and the shark situation and um, just shark stories, I guess. And let's let's let me just start it off with. I, the last time we dove the Coronados, you had told, said a a situation that happened with you and your buddy where your buddy got knocked out. Mm-hmm. You want to just start out with that shark story? I mean, there's not much to it, but no, yeah, we were diving a spot, and uh, me and another guy just shot uh, twenty twenty five pound yellow, swam back to the boat, gutted him, and uh, got back in the water. I swam out to the drop off I was working, and. Um, there was a couple dives I didn't realize it till afterwards that my, the hair was standing up on the back of my neck. Like something was watching me and I didn't know it, you know, just like that weird feeling. A black sea bass came by, didn't even stop. They were normally, though, you know, they swim right up to you. You play with them a little bit. This guy just, whew. so uh, one of my dives, I came up and my buddies on my boat just screaming at me. Great, why, great, why, get out of the water. Um, so, so yeah, Joe, uh, Joe came up, he was down on the bottom about 50, 55 and, um, he came up and there was a, the top 15 was kind of a murk layer. And then below that, it was probably 60, 70 foot biz. And he came up, put a snorkel in his mouth, put his face in the water. And all I saw was jaws, the, 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 the head of the great white, about 14 foot, he said, um, coming at him and just naturally put his gun out to block it it wasn't coming to attack him it was just coming out like hey what are you you know but those little touches hurt and uh <laughs> and so that thing pushed him like out of the water to like right above his knees and then he said he walked on the water now i've known joe for a long time joe's a combat veteran and and joe uh, was very shooken up so i yeah, and he's not one to exaggerate. So, and I've seen plenty of fourteen to eighteen footers there at the island. So, yeah, they're there, but I think they're only there in the spring. Yeah, when they're Probably transiting, season. when they're uh, transiting. Okay, the big ones. Yeah, when they're come working their way down the coast. Yeah, um, but you know, since we're talking about sharks, I mean, I write, you know, I run fishing trips and dive trips. I mean, I last year I probably saw twenty five different great whites throughout the season. Really? Yeah. Majority of them are all offshore where the tuna are. Very yeah. few along the coast. Seeing a couple, couple more of the islands last year. Um, one day saw two different ones within about a half an hour, and I was driving eight knots, so I know it wasn't the same shark that I passed, but yeah, two of them about 10 to 20 miles west of San, uh, San Clemente. You know, oh, right in the okay. same area that we were diving on schools of fish. <laughs> well on the east coast i mean during the winter time they're all off have you now that they track all these sharks it's a trip 
I mean, yeah. it really shows you like the pattern. There is a pattern. I mean, all animals migrate, follow the food source, but uh, you can see they go from Massachusetts right off of like North Carolina and Virginia. And I remember seeing a post from a, a guy I follow on Instagram and he was like, number two dive, you know, of the month. And both times got out of the chase out of the water by a great white, just offshore jumping in and it's green, you know, and then yeah. all of a sudden you see him. And then if you pull up the little shark tracker, you're like, oh shit. It's one of the tag ones. They're just there, you know. Oh, wow. I mean, what well, you just see like, oh, they're so concentrated in that one area off Virginia, off north north, right there. Um and it was interesting because I think the thing is, I mean I feel like we know just as much as the scientists now with all this stuff, you know, like I never really gave it too much thought other than the guys, the old fishermen would share stuff and you're like, okay, that's where I learned a yeah. lot. Of well, stuff. there's so much data now and, and information's right on this freaking phone. Yeah. Like my daughter on the way to her batting practice was looking up where all the sharks are. Yeah. You it's, know? It's, it's amazing the technology we have. I mean, there's a lot of sharks here year round pupped. You know, on the on the sandy beaches in in Southern California, right. Malibu, uh, from Del Mar all the way to San Clemente, yeah, is, Silver it, Strand, even even so, last couple or actually it was it three four years ago, there was a couple like twelve footers that were hanging out around Coronado. Yeah, I a know few years ago, some of my friends uh, at the team said that they <laughs> saw them. You know, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, they're they're there. Um, after that incident. Um, when I dive the islands and the viz is under 40 foot, I, I wear a shark shield now. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, I've learned to dive with it. It's not bad. Um, you know, it's not, a, I, I don't care about getting decapitated. I just care about getting maimed. <laughs> I, don't, right. I don't want to be maimed. Yeah. You know, the thing, if I knew the thing was going to come up and eat my, bite my head off, then that's fine. It's but over. I wouldn't feel anything. But, yeah. But I don't want to be maimed. So. It's funny because I understand that. I, I follow that. Yeah, it's like this the whole process of that sounds like a nightmare. And then yeah. good luck surfing, you know, with one leg or whatever. Yeah, there's a girl who surfs with one arm. But... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that'd be me because I weigh 230. Yeah, I've got a bad shoulders and all that. I actually, you know what? A couple weeks ago, I saw a guy there. Were, I surfed at PV. There was a guy out there with one arm. Man. Uh, if he was paddling for a wave, dude, I just was like, it's all yours, buddy, because you know yeah. what? You're out there doing it, and that's that's awesome. So, <laughs> I'm already a bad enough surfer with two legs. I don't need one. Yeah. I'm not a pro or anything. I surf, but I'm not, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not anything exceptional. Well, when we were diving, one thing that was unique that I saw with your shark shield was, do you mind telling us about that, what you do for your fin and the way you, the way you hook up your shark shield? Oh, okay. Um yeah, I did wear it. Did I wear it that day? Yeah, I did. Yeah, because yeah. the viz was like twenty five feet. Maybe? If that, yeah, twenty feet. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I actually have it on both of my fins, so I can swap either side. But on the outboard side of my fins, right about three quarters away up the the um, what do you call that? The spine or the the <sighs> the the thing that runs up the side? Yeah. Um. You drill a hole through your carbon fiber fin. I use some. I use the same bungee material that I use for breakaways, and I double it up, and then I use wetsuit glue to glue it in there so it doesn't get cut on the carbon fiber. And then just leave it big enough to where you can pull your whip through on your shark shield. 
that way it, it ha it's following you more than if it's just dangling off of your foot, then it, it's kind of, it doesn't have a way to follow you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then it keeps a, a little <clears throat> further away from you. The first When I first started using it, I had to learn how to duck dive with it um, and not have it come back around and hit me in the back. For the first time I, <laughs> first time I ever wore it, it was clear water, hopped in, and there's sea bass, and I go to make a drop on some sea bass, and the thing comes around, hits me in the back, and you just feel like somebody punched you in the back, not, not hurt, but it's like, holy shit, and you're like, oh, well, that's that, you know, but it, it's a little different. You have to change your duck dive. Right. But um, I think it's important. Um, I don't know. I think, you know, we dive for fun. And it's nice to come home to your family, you know. And so you are diving those areas, like you said. I've always kind of said this. Poor Viz, a lot of sea lions around. You're rolling a dice. Like, and with the, I mean, let's face it, the increase in shark population, it's just an unnecessary that, risk, Yeah, and that's know? a whole other topic because, you know, once again, we pick things to manage that we want to manage, but yet we don't truly manage them. Right. And it's feel good. Yeah, you know, it's it's if you manage. I've always lived by this philosophy, and and I think if if the environmentalists would actually think this way, we we get a little further along and actually saving stuff. But if you manage one species, you have to manage everything. And and man has screwed everything up on the earth since day one, just because we do, we're smart. Yeah. But if you're going to manage a deer population, you have to manage a mountain lion population. You can't not hunt that. If you're, if you're going to manage a fish population and other shark populations, you have to manage the sea lion population and the shark population. But I, I think just seeing being here my whole life and, and 40 plus years, actually like on the water, remembering stuff, uh, I've never seen this many sharks. It couldn't be healthy to have this many sharks. Right. You know, so who knows where the balance is, but, you know, it, you just got to start protecting yourself a little bit more. Yeah, I agree. Because it seems like everything we do typically in a big government, anything is always so reactionary. Everything is reactionary. Mm -hmm. It's like, let's be proactive. But when you're talking about stuff on a bigger scale, all the bureaucratic bullshit, it takes a catastrophic failure to someone to actually acknowledge it, unfortunately. And then it's usually too late. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. So. Right. But anyhow, yeah, I mean, I don't think they're that big of a problem for the vast majority. I just think that people need to start paying attention to it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think with all the water watermen and, you know, we spend so much time in the ocean, we legitimately care about all animals. Like, no, nothing's a demon. I don't care if it's going to eat you or not, you know. Well, the thing with spearfishing, if you're spearfishing properly, you shouldn't look like a seal. Interesting. So well, seals move a lot. Even when they're moving slow, they move a lot faster than we move through the water. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So in in great whites, don't they chase things like a cat does, right? And so if you're stealthy and crawling on the bottom and moving slow and not making a lot of noise, then I don't. I, in my mind, you don't. I don't feel you look like a sea lion. Right. Crappy this. The outline might, <laughs> yeah. But you know, in 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 for the vast majority of the time, that's why I don't think a lot of free divers are or have been bit. You know, California. We had another. Didn't we have another one end of last year? Another shark bite up in North County. Yeah, and they've all been swimmers splashing. You yeah. know, I think there's a lot to that. So, and usually in the surf zone, you get, you know, bad viz, uh, yeah, poor viz. So it's 
And you get those Shark. juvenile sharks that are learning, yep. that are just getting big enough to start hunting the pinnipeds. Yep. And so they're like, oh, look, this might be easy. Let me give it a shot. Yeah. I've seen it with animal training. I mean, I train dolphins and sea lions. And just with intelligent animals, that transition, that thought process. Well, they like, see whites can actually reason. More, the more they're studying the brains. Yeah. Um, I, I watched a few documentaries. They're... They're thinking that they, you know, they're one of the only fish like bluefin that can change their body temperature. And they, they're they figuring out that they have a very good memory. So, I mean, how smart? Maybe they are really freaking smart. Well, I mean, I've watched yeah. another documentary about that down in South Island, New Zealand. They were showing the sharks were able to, like, they were, you know, it's a theory that they were working together to hunt. I saw that one. Yeah, yeah. It, it, they, it was they found ago. that was it years ago. There was another one that they did during COVID, and they were studying because so many more sharks came around because like uh-huh. that first six months of COVID, so little boats was in the you know ships were running around the world. The noise was so little, and less boat traffic. They started seeing so many more sharks. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I guess that would lead. That would lead. I guess I would give a little bit of credit to the whole, oh, boats at Guadalupe are scaring off sharks or something, maybe? No, I just think they're, I think they're there. I think they're just more relaxed a little bit. I, you know, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like us when you go to, you're not as relaxed when you're in your home as you are when your boss is watching you. Right. Yeah. Right? I watch I mean, what I say. Yeah, you know, definitely. I mean, it's just, I think it's the same kind of thing. You know, they're, they're like, wow, this is weird, you know? Yeah. I mean, they are just animals. We are too, I guess. I mean, we're animals. We we have that reasoning and opposable thumbs. That's yeah. the only difference, you, I guess. I guess. So in your experience, I mean, you you got so much time in the water and you have such a network of friends. Um, do you think that the shark shield works? I mean. By far. I talked to a few people um, up in um, Santa Barbara that both had white shark encounters. Um, and both were wearing shark shields. Both of them said that the shark circled them at 15 feet and would never come any closer while they swam back to the boat. Um, if you look into the law down in Australia. Yeah, the West, Western Oz, too, I think. Yeah, yeah. the uh, ur, uh, uh, urchin diver, or the abalone divers, divers. The abalone divers either have to have that cage they carry around or a shark shield. Right. Those are the only two acceptable items. Okay, nobody down there has ever been killed wearing a shark shield. Yeah, I'll take it. So, I, I mean, I watch, there's so many YouTube videos of, of them towing, you know, the fake sea seal with a shark shield. And all you see is that glimpse of that shark coming at 25 miles an hour and turns off like that. Yeah. From that shark shield. Um. Jerry from Neptonics, you know, I wholesale Nept- uh, Neptonics gear and stuff out here, but, you know, he told me he doesn't wear one down in the Gulf, and I don't either. The reef sharks really don't, you know, bother, but he said he's tested it out, and he's like, no, even the angry bulls will not come near you. Oh, very nice. So, yeah. I mean, at worst case, take it, you know, sea bass dive, and you get a sea bass tied up, turn it on, put it on the sea bass, and then the uh, seven gill won't gills. eat it. No, that's a good point. <laughs> it's getting that time of year. Um, so, I guess that's a good topic to get on. Um, white sea bass. I mean, I know, you know, you won the contest the one year. Uh, I'm 
that was there. I saw you win it. Was that by a couple ounces? Ray, Ray and, no, no. Ray and I were exactly Tied. the same. Yeah. And then it came, I think my fish was a half an inch longer yes. or something. And Damien's rules, it was like, he just called me. He's like, hey, you saw the fish? I'm like, yeah. He's like, can you measure it for me? I'm like, okay. So yeah. I measured it, and I didn't even know what it was about. I thought it was for, you know, this right. stuff. But, um, but yeah, so, yeah, Ray, Lucky Ray and I both, <laughs> I, uh, I can't remember Ray's last name, but Lucky Ray, that's what. That's what his nickname is. Oh, nice. Would you have any tips or with sea bass or, um, you know, do you have a story like in your growth, like hunting, what, what year did you start hunting white sea bass? I mean, you've been diving most of your life. <laughs> um, about 95, you know, like really getting into, actually, well, 96, I was in the hospital for a while. Year in '95, but um, yeah, about then. That's before I had that accident we talked about earlier. Um, uh, it was about '94 that I really like got serious spear fishing. Yeah, I always spear fish, yeah, hardcore fishing. But about '94, um, '96, you know. But back then there wasn't crap for white sea bass. If you got one a season, oh shit, you know that was good. If you saw a few, that was good because the gill nets were gill still. Nets. You know, that's been the big reason I think the, that and the halibut fishing has came back so good. It's the gillnet band uh, within three miles. Um, I have heard that exact same thing from several people. Well, yeah, I mean, up them. until about I have 2002, uh -huh. I mean, that's when we like really just started seeing a lot of sea bass and really showing back up. Yeah. Like, you know, thick. Um, stories. Wow, that one that I shot for that contest. Yeah. Um, that one there, I have. I still have the video on that because I was wearing a GoPro. I remember it was super green. It was it was green. I was actually diving up at Swami's that day. Oh, really? Yeah, I was diving at Swami's that day, and uh, went to La Jolla. And it was it was really crappy. So I was like, ah, let's just run up to Swami's. Uh -huh. So hadn't seen anything all freaking day, and um, diving, diving, and then I saw a black sea bass, and I was like, oh, you know, here, I'll get a little footage, I had my GoPro on, so I'm diving, and follow, just following the sea bass around, and just out of the corner of my eye, about 30 feet away, I see a shadow, and then all of a sudden, it comes clear, it's about 10 feet above me, and it's that sea bass, <clears throat> so I pull off of there, and I go to, I go to, you know, line up on him, and he starts to swim behind some kelp, and then I, in the video, you'll see I got my my gun hangs up on the kelp for a second. Thank goodness my uh, slip tip didn't come off. And I purposely shot him in, in probably a foot from the tail because that was the only shot I had. I'm like, if I hit him, it'll be a good shot. Yeah. And so, you know, about a foot, 18 inches up from the tail, I threw shafted right, at, right before he disappeared behind this kelp. And he took off. I had three black sea bass. <laughs> that fish was 64 pounds. And... These none of these blacks were over 110. One of them had them in his mouth. As I'm pulling, I fight, remember that video. I'm fighting the black, and and then he let go, and I'm just like pulling it up. Three of them come shooting up after it, you know, and I'm just like, wow. Seen some, you know, 200, 300 pound blacks try to do that, but not the smaller ones. So that was, you know, that was a cool experience. Yeah, fun. I Good forgot memory. about that video. I, I remember the it. screenshots. I think you you posted portions of it or whatever. Yeah, 
But uh, I remember being super green, and I thought you were somewhere uh, south of here. Let's put it that way. No, uh, no, no. That was that was actually Swami's on on that tournament. Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, that's the one you won by length. That was yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. Have you noticed? Um, but but back to you yeah. know, tips on sea bass though. Yeah, I'm gonna say anything you have to perfect to hunt sea bass, especially because no matter what, a lot of sea bass are shot at dove on as they swim under people as they're breathing up. I mean, that's just the way it happens because the water's crappy this and they just boom appear and you better you know take your opportunity when you can get it. But learn how to exhale and die without making a sound. That's number one number one key is is making a drop without making noise or vibration for them to feel. I mean I've shot oh, good oh, I've so many of them Diving down on them and coming up right behind them because if if you can get right behind them, they can't feel you. Right. And there's been a few I've chased down, literally kicking as hard as I could, gun extended out, just waiting for them to turn and and they turn and it's 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 like when um, an animal takes something, you know, like your cat or your dog, and they get caught. They look back at you like, whoa, yeah, you know, like the. Like what? Something's behind me, and then all of a sudden you just push in your perfect. I I like chasing them down. That's why I, I I prefer diving sea bass nowadays on restructure instead of kelp. Yeah, I did that last year. I saw got that. I mean, all over the rocks and stuff. I've always hunted them before in the kelp, and then all of a sudden open open water, basically just. Yeah, school size fish. I mean, just all over the rocks, and it was literally that exact. It reminded me of hunting parrotfish, where you know, like, and and clear deep water where you kind of have to just get forty five and hang below them or hang enough to where they're like, what? And then you can take the shot, but you have to sneak up on them. Otherwise, yeah, they're they're weird. I mean, there's there so many times you're looking one direction, you go to get up, and then there's three or four right behind you, you know, that just showed up in that split second. And then you know, don't spook them. If you can, spooking is, is like a boom. If you hear a boom, that's not good. But if they just scatter away, that's fine. They'll be back, you know. Yeah. They're just cruising areas. Um, so one thing that I've said too that I kind of noticed was like exactly what you said. Spooking them is you freaking them out. Going for a swim, you want them to know you're there so they come and check you out. Just mm -hmm. be calm and move slow. But it's literally like every one that I saw last year, you know, I just look over and it's like, oh, there's a seal. No, that's a, that's a, that's a sea bass, and he's right there. Mm -hmm. And then. I wanted to ask you about this. When they turn and move, I know so many people, including myself, that have missed. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, I should have hit that thing. But apparently, like... Well, that reminds... That's like hunting moves in, in the tropics. Yeah. I mean, those things are like Matrix. You know? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, that open water... I mean, even even a 50-pound sea bass can, can, like, turn its body in such a way that you're just like, how the heck did they miss, and, you know, right. that shot? But, um, you know, if, if they're sideways and they kind of slowly go away and they get facing away from you, you know, I would I would kick as hard as possible after them because they're probably going to slightly turn to check you out and you might get a shot. Right. Okay, um, that's good information. But I, I think hunting them um, open water on the reef, the best way is kind of hunt them like you would hunt a snapper, lay on the bottom. Let them come to you and above you. Most of their most fish, their predators come from above. 
if you can get below a fish, it's less, if that makes sense. Because their whole life from, from a fry, a bird's been trying to get it. You know, other fish are coming in even. Yeah. But then you come up from below, they're not, they don't feel from below. Right. So that makes, yeah. sense. That makes, it makes sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like counter shading. I think understanding your prey is where a lot of spear fishermen go wrong. They don't understand the physiological parts of that fish or how that fish acts. Right. You know, um, I think you have to think like a predator and also how nature, I mean, there's counter shading. Everything is like, like, look, we talked about a gray white before. They're counter, they are going to ambush from below. Whoa. So, like you said, when you get below them, if they do see you, they're more curious. Just like if you make eye contact with an ambush predator, the jig is kind of up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that just that might save your life or, or, you know, cause a, I mean, I said it before with the animal training or just in general. I mean, animals are predator. And if you don't act like prey, they don't really are not sure because we're not no. we're not used. They're not used to seeing. We don't belong in their environments. So they don't know. They're still trying to figure out what the fuck we are. So if, when if, we don't, I act bet like if you, prey, if a great white came up to you and you just started splashing and and, and like ah in the water, I bet they would be like, whoa, yeah. The sea lions don't do that. I mean, they jump around but and splash. But if you like came after them. You know, like a mountain lion or a bear, right? They say, don't run. Yeah, make yourself as big and loud as possible. Yeah, and I think about it too, like badgers going at, uh, you see a badger fight, uh, scare off a grizzly bear for a kill. And you're like, yeah, if you, you know, we say like, don't be a soft target, right? You make yourself hard. (laughs) Uh, It's not worth the animal. They're not stupid. They got (laughs) to live. They can't take that injury. So I'm not saying go out and jump in the water with a gray white and go charge them down. But if it comes down to it, as scared as you are. I have no problem releasing a shaft. <laughs> oh, I don't have a problem. Yeah, I'm going. If home. he's coming after me. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know people have had to shoot Makos, you know, a few aggressive, sick Makos over the years. But, yeah, you know, they're usually pretty fine, you know. seen a few big ones in the water. I remember the one you guys shot or gaff that had line wrapped around it looked sick it was really oh sick. yeah that one came after uh, a diver yeah i got that on video too yeah i saw that i think um, i saw the the screenshots of yeah it. the thing came in had a uh, the thing had been a, a two inches into its neck nine nine foot four inches and just emaciated um it was eaten nothing went to waste yeah. um but yeah the thing came by the diver and then went away it was on a patty and then just did a U-turn and just came right at him, and he's swimming away and plugged him right in the head on a real gun. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> and, shot. But I, mean, I think being in there, it messed up all the uh, sensor sensories in there. You know? Right. And but I mean, it wasn't an easy fight. I mean, I we got back to the boat and I, I hand handlined the thing in and we landed it. I you know if if it's gonna die, I make sure it goes to use. So. Right. Um, you know, it, it wasn't like we went out targeting that shark or anything. Yeah. But I was going to ask you about that because I was wondering, you know, I know people that shot Magos on a spear. And I'm like, so let me get this straight. Like, I've caught them when I was a kid growing up. And it's like, you're going to pull, you're going to be on the water and pull that fucking thing close to you. Like, well, Magos and Swordfish are a lot like Mark Morgan yeah. shot a three foot Mako one time. I think came back after him. Yeah, like swordfish. The guy in Hawaii shot that swordfish, and then it impaled on him. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have a philosophy. I don't. I usually don't, you know, bother sharks because 
I don't either. But yeah, I mean, I do make those good eat, and I prefer it over swordfish most of the time. It, it's it's not as fatty, but um, yeah. you know, there's occasional you know mako problem, but I think it's very rare because like that that one was sick. I think it's right. just like something to eat. Desperate, like the like an animal with mange or something, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, they they don't have anything to lose. So, <laughs> how does uh? So back to the sea bass. I got sidetracked. Mm-hmm. I could talk about sharks all day. I don't know. Uh, but the sea bass. Do you think, as far as time, you know, when to go? What I I've kind of figured out. It's like talking to people. Like my thing is, man, no current, like slack tide. Try to catch them logging, sleeping, whatever it is. Do you have your own little – have you found your own little recipe or do you agree with that or what What do you think? I mean I've heard so many things, low tide, high tide, and I really kind of think about just maybe slack tide regardless if it's low or high tide. But have you found anything that you think, you know? There's a few things. Um, I, I will say a slack tide is, is – sea bass don't like current. They're right. they're lazy fish. They're they're some of the laziest fish. Um, when the current gets ripping, they're usually down on the bottom. Um, and um, you know, people dive and they say, "Oh man, I heard them croaking. They sound like they're right next to me. They they were probably a hundred yards away, if not more." You know, I mean, those that sound travels amazing in water. Um, it's like when you hear a boat running and you look up and the thing's a half a mile away, but it sounds like it's right next to you, you know, like an yeah. outboard or something. Oh, yeah. Um, but a slack tide, anything where the kelp is still up, you know, um, I, I'd say evening time is probably going to be your by far your most productive over overall throughout time. I I have found that as well. Yeah, um, the early start for lobster, and then uh, my friends have seen sea bass roll up on them. Yeah, I mean, know. it me, you know, it's kind of like, well, when do you have time to go, and when is it right? Right. I get in, I might dive a spot for ten minutes and be like, all right, I'm out of here. I'm going to dive another bit because I go off of how I feel in the water, and I trust that over anything else. You know, I mean, unless I, see, you know, when you see one, but, but if I get in a spot and I'm like, yeah, it, it just, I, if I don't feel it, I know, I know what I need to see to make it happen generally. Right. Um, and it's certain things, people, they're not in the bed feeding. They do randomly feed, you know, kayakers fishing, but they're not in there act, act, uh, actively chasing bait. You know, they're in there just to chill. Uh so, you know, especially if you're in the kelp, I'd say, you know, just move as slow as possible. As slow as possible. Don't shoot from the surface. Don't shoot. Exhale and get a foot below the surface. Don't shoot from the surface. Right. That that goes with everything, too. I mean, mm-hmm. for those of you that are wondering, everything. <laughs> yeah, Toronto, there's... anything. I don't care how flat the ocean is. The ocean's still moving. And you don't realize it, and there's no way you're not in your nat- natural aiming, you know, or uh, body mechanics. Right. And so, even on a flat, calm day, that ocean's still moving up and down, up and down. So you're going to be off. You yep. might get lucky and hit hit it, but most of the time you're probably going to miss or 
hair out of the fish or something. So um, moving on now, I mean, I mean, I what you just said isn't my. It's just nice to have that reinforced about the white sea bass. I'm like, okay, so I'm not chasing my tail. Um, <laughs> but I and it's cool. It's like, oh, I actually do know some shit. That's great. Um, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, patty kelp patties or just offshore. Uh-huh. Like fishing or diving, yeah. because you've done it for years, uh, both you know just traditional fishing and then spear fishing. But how do you approach? Now we have you know I guess AIS and everything else, so we kind of know where the fish are. But how do you like to approach kelp? Uh, you know, patty hopping as we call it. How do I approach it? Um. Well, it. If I'm on my big boat, my charter boat, I have side skin and sonar. Um, and I don't, you don't always pick up fish on it. Um, but generally on a patty, as I roll up, I scan the patty and know if anything's on there. Um, you know, diving, you don't, you don't always need a lot of fish on there for diving, you know, depending on how many, how many people you have on there. My advice to anybody, um, you know, pat, look, pad, diving patties is uh, hop in. For five minutes at the most. If you don't see anything within five minutes, move on. Because you're just going to waste your day. And if you saw one fish and you took a shot and you're hoping, or maybe there was a couple and you took a shot and missed and they keep coming by, but they're not close enough, they're never going to come close enough. Probably because you're chasing them. Don't chase the yellowtail or the dorado on the patties, you know. Hunt them just like you would hunt a white sea bass. Let them come to you. You know, swim with them and away from them, then they'll come to you and then kind of bend back towards them. So, yeah, too many people. Yeah, too many. I see a lot of stuff from the wheelhouse, you know, when when we're diving and and, and just through the years. And and it's amazing how people who I thought knew better would chase fish. Yeah. I was like, what are you doing? Why are you chasing the fish? I feel like especially on the patties because they're not going anywhere. Well, they will. They will, but if, if you... Let them pass by. So I tell everybody, by. I say, look, if if you got two guys in the water. Right. If, if, if a school of yellowtail or dorado come up, don't get excited and shoot right away. Both of you guys make two or three dives with the fish. They're going to come so close to you and don't, you know, don't put your gun out like, oh, okay, I could have had that one. Let them come in. Don't look at them. They're going to come in close enough to where you can take a nice shot and stone one. The school won't spook. Your buddy can shoot one. Everybody goes and rushes and dives and shoots a fish. There's a mutual friend of ours years ago. It's back in 16. I took him out on my skiff. Well, I'm not going to say any names, but <laughs> I throw him on this patty. We were looking for a bluefin. And I told him, I said, don't shoot a yellowtail. If you want a bluefin... There's, at that time, there had been bluefin around patties, you know? Uh-huh. And so um, I said, don't shoot it. We're only looking at this thing because I marked a few fish. Made uh-huh. some drops. I'm glassing. And him and, and one of my best friends were on the boat and, and my skiff. And, and then I glass up. Cows foaming. This person shoots a yellow. His stuff's all tied up. I run up to that. My buddy Brian, he was ready, but um, he he didn't get an opportunity. I rolled up. I threw I threw an iron on my surface rod. I mean, a long rod. <laughs> it got spooled in about one second. 
But yeah, so you know, it's like if you have some target in mind, you know, if, uh, I don't know where I went on that, but it's it's about just be calm, let the fish get used to you, and then take a nice shot. Then you're not going to deal with the the yellowtail running into the kelp patty and causing all kinds of disturbance. And once you get a yellow in the kelp patty, rarely are you going to get those kelp fish back within a couple hours. You know, right? They're going to go deep. Most of the time, people, yellows will go deep. The uh, the mahi go out. Okay. So if you're not seeing any mahi that came through, swim further away from the patty. Everybody goes and hangs out at the patty like they're going to shoot a calico bass or a sea bass. The fish aren't under the patty. They're around the patty. Stay a good 40, 50 feet away from the patty. Because when you shoot a nice fish and you can't stop it and it goes into the kill, it's just going to, you have a chance of losing it and you, you know, you're going to make so much disturbance. Right. So Do you notice, uh, you talk about where the fish are, like you said, um, with the with the mahi being far away, which I've seen all that too. You notice are they up current or, or like with yellowtail being more up current or mahi? All of them are going to be more on the up up upswell side. Okay. When you roll up to a patty, you can tell which way the patty is drifting by the tail hanging, right? Right. Whichever way that tail's pointing is most likely where that fish is going to hang out most of the time. Okay. Now, yellowfin tuna will hang out downswell of a patty most of the time. That's what I, I remember hearing. They're you. they're different. Okay. So, you know, each fish kind of has their own thing. Yeah. You know, you shoot a couple of yellows on a patty, make it drop to 40 feet. I bet money you see them. Most people won't because there's usually a murk layer at 30 that turns black. But, you know, if you got the balls while you're offshore. This episode is brought to you by Neptonics Spearfishing. Uh, go check out neptonics.com for the absolute best, most reliable spearfishing gear at some of the best prices in the market as well. Uh, the thing that I like about Neptonics is you know the gear has been tested on there and they're not going to have some generic crap on there. It's all gear that works and people use it every day uh, with great results so don't forget to put in the spear factor 10 promo code to get 10 percent off neptonics.com so i get this question a lot as far as can i recommend a charter and i absolutely can lineage charters here in san diego uh, does giant bluefin tuna trips uh, multi-day trips and Captain Bly is your guy. He's got over 30 years of spearfishing and commercial fishing experience. So be sure to check out lineagecharters.com for offshore action. Yeah, I was, was told that you drop to 60 and scare them all up and your buddy's waiting right there. And they always come right by you and then boom, like one of the guys. Just yeah, they ready. hang deep. I mean, it's nothing for a yellow to go 300 feet deep. Yeah. And we'll catch them in Baja at three to 400 feet. When I was in Hawaii, I caught a freaking 50-pound amberjack at 940 feet. <laughs> yeah, we, were, we were fishing uh, Onagas. Yep. And, uh, and <laughs> we were commercial, like, fishing them, you know, a hand line, but then on a, on a um, bandy uh, reel. But, yeah, 50-pound amberjack at 940 feet. Wow. Amazing. That must have been, I mean, that's what I think about the ocean is so incredible is that we live by these, you know, these guidelines and rules. And then there, every now and then there's a fish or something that just. But I looked out. it up. 
And yeah. and I just looked it up online, and they stayed at twelve hundred feet. I never knew amberjack hung out that deep, twelve hundred foot. Wow. So yeah, <laughs> I know the big ones are deep, I guess. But but you know what? Let me add on that. You know, kelp patty or you know, East Coast people on a sargasso weed line. Yeah. You know, in or anywhere with a weed line or whatever. That's all our kelp patties are. Just weed lines, basically. Um, you know, if there's somebody fishing or dive of it, dive in it. Don't. It's theirs. Let them finish. It's everybody's ocean, but it it's the first person who found it. Yeah, too many people, I will say this, like from my own little public service announcement, I've seen too many divers make us look really bad by uh-huh. jumping on fishing, you know, guys are fishing it, or even asking him, and he's in the middle of catching a fish, hey, are you good if we dive? You know, it's like, there's... There, you know, sometimes there's a lot of patties and sometimes there's not, but too bad, so sad. Find that patty line where you find that first patty and follow the current, and you're bound to find another one. And They're all you, current breaks. Yeah. And, and usually if there's one, there's going to be another one or two around. You know, look for the, the streaks in there. That's the current breaks, and they're usually on current breaks. Um, yeah, last year, I guess there was a video. Somebody up in L.A. was down this way, diving tuna right off the new Loan. I mean, it's ridiculous. Now, granted, the fishermen are, 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 they do their own things, but I mean, diving is diving. You basically, a guy can pull up to a kelp patty and fish it and not ever bother the fish. If you get in, you're going to spook them. Right. You know, so yeah, you be a little respectful of the fisherman, you know, or the other diver or whatever. Yeah, that's the one thing that's unique about fishing is that you could limit out on a patty. And with spear fishing, I mean, you you could get a few couple of fish, you know. But if you're lucky, you don't spook yeah. them. But really, as soon as you put a shaft through Johnny, you know, Timmy and Tommy run off, mm-hmm. and then that's the end of that. Now, if you stone it. them and there's no commotion, right. you can shoot them all day. Yeah, and and I think we probably you know three of us probably shot ten yellows off of a patty. Every shot was a stone shot. There was no commotion in the water. Right. So, you know. Um, they didn't see Timmy swimming around with a shaft. <laughs> no, seriously, that's the biggest thing is, like, get that fish under control. It's, I mean, it's just, you know, take a good, clean shot. And that kind of goes back to what you're saying is just be patient. If you don't give them – they're not going to – I mean, if you don't give them anything to be afraid of, they'll come closer and come closer. And they, well, yellows are the stupidest fish. They, they, I they, know. Yellows – I've watched yellowtail beat up makos and make them throw up and eat the – they eat the – I mean, that's a the thing. They they hit uh, makos in their stomach, and then they throw up what they've eaten, and then they yellowtail eat it. Yellowtail are mean fish. They're not like a nice fish, so they don't, ha- they don't have a lot of fear like a bonita or a sea bass who isn't, you know, one that's just out there on the – proud you know yeah they're they're big time predators so they don't fear much oh yellow taylor so dumb yeah they, i so another topic i'd like to discuss with you is for those of you that haven't seen or, or don't know but matt you know he owns cap he captain Bly spear guns mm-hmm. and you know mass equals accuracy is kind of the theory of of like you're kind of I guess. It is. I mean, there's a point of, I mean, you don't need that much mass. In the last like few years, I've been, I've been working like, how much can I shrink down to where? Right. Um, it. Yeah. So, you know, I've been kind of working that boundary where that happy medium is. Uh, it's still kind of 
under the philosophy of nothing under three pounds for every band, right? On yeah. a gun. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I used to think more to four pounds, but um, uh, three. I've made a few five bands that were right about three pounds, and and there's a little more feel in the handle. You know, not as bad as some production guns out there that are really light and shoot a lot of bands, but um. You know, there's that happy medium. I think if you stick with with three pounds, um, you're 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 going to be fine on on your accuracy. Yeah. So, I think your guns. I was was always amazed by. Is your background in carpentry? No. Because I mean, they're beautiful, and I'm like, yeah, they are beautiful. And if you watch like the symmetry, the lines. And the path that you carve out for your bands to go. I always, I, tr- I actually have a gun over here that I tried to do that. And oh, I've got not, some Frankenstein's from years ago. Yeah, it did not look like that, but it was definitely inspired by the Captain Bly. You know, I, I don't do anything on a CNC. Uh-huh. Um, I have a basically an eight foot table along a wall that's it's like an upside down. You know, it's a router, but it's all built just for guns. You know, making guns, but all the shaping is all done by hand and eye. You know, everything is cut, like the track, pocket, all that. That's all cut on a center line. But all the shaping and everything, I do, it's all freehand. It just takes so much time, too, huh? I mean, how long does it take you to make a gun? Because I, I was kind of... Uh, you know, people ask me that, and it's, it's hard to really add up all the time. Because if I start from going to the lumber yard, I, I don't buy pre-milled stuff. I mill all my own wood and then make my blanks. And you glue them up or? Yeah, yeah. epoxy laminated. Um, But, you know, you can go buy wood and it's already uh, four, you know, basically four sides or three sides are good. Um, But I like to pick what they call rough lumber. And I mill all my own stuff so I can cut it right to the size I want and everything. They're lambed up. They sit for a minimum of two to three months. After I lamb them up, straighten them up, let them sit, let them do their thing. Um, you know, I only build guns out of teak and then knock on teak. I've never had a teak gun move, but I'm very careful on how I deal with it. How the grain goes together when you epoxy it, it's a big thing, you know. Um, we, we can go on for days on that one, right? But I, I learned a little bit of woodworking, um, from my, my mom's second husband, not a lot. But I, I've, I've always been in construction. I Boat building, I've always, you know, I, mean, I guess that's carpentry, you know. But, you know, growing up on boats, boat work, fiberglassing, you know, you're always dealing with wood and stuff. Um, I really came, I like to be in my shop and have nobody there. It, it's a rare time that I can focus and not worry about the world. That's, you know, that's a place I can go to relieve stress. Because all I'm thinking about is that next thing I'm doing on that gun. I don't have the phone on, the phone's off, nobody bothers me, you know? I, so, uh, but, but coming back to the woodworking, it's just, I started building them and I just fell into it. And it was, I didn't want to stop, you know? Right. Uh, it's hard, you know, you, you know, there's things in your life that pulled you a certain way and that you're just passionate about. Yep. Um, uh, one thing with the making the gun that I found, and I talked to nick garcia about this years ago uh and 
I was saying when I, because I'm not very experienced, I've probably made eight guns. But when I make a gun, every gun is kind of unique because I want to try something different that usually stimulates me to like, okay, I'm going to make a tuna gun now, or I'm going to make a reef gun, or I'm going to make this gun. Or I saw something like your gun, and I was like, I want to make one of those, you know, <laughs> or something like that, right? And then I will lose sleep just thinking about how, like, what's the best way to do that? Um, you know, what if I do this or that? Uh, and then with the gun building, too, it's like you're always one chip away from just fucking up the whole thing. One thing can screw it all up if you don't know how to fix it. Yeah, but I I found epoxy is wonderful <laughs> to fix things. Yeah. And you can always wrap it in carbon or something. No, you don't want to do that. But you can always paint it, color it. Yeah. A, a good buddy of mine, Rich, he doesn't live around here anymore, but uh, one day he goes, dude, you're such a good woodworker. I'm like, why? He goes, because nobody knows where your screw-ups are. I said, well, exactly. That's a good woodworker or carpenter. Nobody's perfect. Right. I've screwed guns up before, but I know how to, you know, I've learned over the years, oh, I can do this. It's not going to affect it, you know, to fix it or yeah. whatever. You know, a little pull out, chip out or pull out or something. Yeah, I mean, shoot, there's days. You look at the price of teak now at $40 a board foot. And Is it 40 now? It's $40 it a board foot. Last time I looked, last time I made a gun. Yeah, a couple years ago? Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's $40 a board foot now. Oh, cool. And that's that's for rough. More for the milled stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, even now, I mean, I, I, I've, I've tried to keep track of all the guns, you know, over the years. And I, I don't know the number, but, I mean, I still get nervous. Especially on a big tuna gun where you're looking at a lot of lumber. Yeah. And you're like, oh, crap. So it's still a you know, it's still a, a anxiety moment you know on certain cuts. Well, that's a trip too because when you start you know shaving down or milling down, <clears throat> and I remember telling my wife, I'm like, there's about uh, you know fifty dollars of dust right there. Like, a well, people teak. laugh at me on this that what I do is scrap teeth. You know, I'm like, well, that's not useful to me, but I'll, yeah, it's useful as a stir stick right now for a boxy. <laughs> But what am I going to do with it? Throw it away? Yeah. How am I going to use it? I think I have a piece of scrap teak over but, there that you I know, cut down the sides with. And I'm like, I'll use it for something. But I'm not throwing that away. I don't throw. Yeah. 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 Teak doesn't get thrown away. No. So, I mean, I just, mahogany is still cheap. I'll build test guns or sometimes out of mahogany. Mahogany is great if you know what mahogany to use and you look, and you epoxy it right and let it sit and everything. Uh, it's a fine wood to use, especially if you're learning how to make guns. Don't don't build the first couple of guns out of teak. Build them out of mahogany. I would say, like, uh, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, I mean, literally the first gun, if you make a gun out of teak, it's like 200 bucks of wood just to start. And then, you know. Well. I mean, that was a $33 a board foot when I first started making them. Yeah, and that was. Um, that was a few years what ago. What size gun? That was a. What was it 50 inches or something like exactly that? yeah now you take a 65 inch gun right and you're looking at 400 dollars yeah of wood and you know all the epoxy because you well, have is expensive too you know, 200 it's two my price is which is a good price is 200 dollars for a gallon and a half now yeah i was just thinking you know what a year two years ago two and a half years ago it was a 
Yeah, again, because I haven't bought epoxy because the last time I, you know, mm -hmm. and I guess now that we're on the topic, like what? Because all epoxy is not created equal, and I have discovered <sighs> that myself. No, no. And then there's blushing and non-blushing. Um, I I will not use a blushing. I mean, it it's fine for most people, but uh, if you're laminating, it's fine. But blushing is was originally developed for molds because all the oils come up to the surface, right? Like West System. If you look at the data on West System, it's not their numbers on tensile strength and compression aren't even close to a lot of other epoxies. Um, I don't use West Systems. Um, I use was using uh, a brand called Aeromarine. Yep. They I've used to them. be in San Diego. They've moved to Pennsylvania. Oh. Um, I I needed some some more epoxy for the boat work, and um, they raised their price to two hundred four dollars a gallon. Now they're in Pennsylvania. It's sixty dollars to ship ten pounds ground now. <laughs> so I was like, all right, thank you. I, I, I'm. I've used other system three uh, different stuff, and it's always been good product. So um, this this set of epoxy I'm using system three. Okay. On the boat, which I'll, I'll figure it out and how I like it. Yeah, and I've I've I found the hard way that even if you mix, uh, when I'm mixing a small batch, right, just to do like a small gun, some epoxies won't even fire unless you do a certain amount. Like they would. Well, now. I that's not true because if you leave it in the pot longer, uh -huh. it will go off. You just have to wait until you feel the warmth of the chemical reaction. Too many people use epoxies and and don't let them sit. I don't care if you're mixing up six ounces; you should let it sit for at least four or five minutes before you apply it because you're not letting the chemical reaction happen to do what it's supposed to do. Okay. And I learned that the hard way years ago with epoxy paint primers, right? Yep. Uh, on the boats and stuff. And it was cold, and I went back down to Pro, and I'm like, man, what the heck's going on? He's like, how long do you let it sit in the pot? I'm like, well, I'm like five minutes. He's like, dude, when it's cold like this, 30, 40 minutes. Oh, that Before makes you sense. even touch it. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, for decades now, I've been using, like, on the boat the other day, I mixed up epoxy. It was, it was cold, right? Yep. Mixed up 20 minutes before I needed it. Okay. Uh, okay, it needs another 10 minutes. It sat for three ounces of hot boxy. Sat for 30 minutes before I even touched it. You know, I don't use the fast cures. I only use slow cure. Like concrete, the faster anything cures, the weaker it the weaker is. The weaker it is, yeah. yeah. So, uh, always use a slow cure if you, if you can. Right. I know that, like, um, and, and Craig and I am wrong on this one, too. When you go to do that coating your gun, your epoxy, you're talking about, like, it's days. It's a week's process that I found. Like oh, coat, oh, coat. those. Well, when it comes to coating guns, you should. I, I don't feel you should ever coat a gun with full strength epoxy. Uh -huh. You gotta reduce it some. And, and why and, is that? And do thinner coats. You're gonna get less checking. You know what checking is? No. You know when you you brush epoxy on and it kind of like clumps in. It looks micro like it clumps. It's not perfectly smooth. If okay. you take epoxy and you, you lay it yes. on, it won't be perfectly smooth. Okay. Um, but now, over the years, I found, like, I have a little concoction. I, I mix acetone with it, uh, you know, a certain amount. And thin layers, it's probably reduced, like, I'd say max 5% on that, you know? It just depends on how thick the epoxy is because everyone's viscosity is different. But 
and really thin coats and they're dry by the next day and you'll get way less checking and a better finish okay but if you want to take epoxy and have a butter smooth finish like i, I i've done on many guns for people it's good old-fashioned wet sanding and arm work and uh buffing it out at the end okay to make it look like a glass yeah you're never going to get an epoxy epoxy wasn't meant to finish it's not meant to be um because there's no uv protection in epoxy right do you no matter what they say everything i've read says no matter what there's no uv protection really okay if that makes sense like but we're i mean we're not using it like polyester resin has uv we use a lot of surfboards they use it if you notice uh epoxy surfboards yeah, they start to really color after time. Yeah, it's because they don't have the UV inhibitors like polyester resin. Well, that makes sense. So, How but about, on a spear gun, it's not out in the sun every single day, so right. it's not a big deal. How about um, as far as uh, your finishes? I mean, is there a secret to that, or you don't have to share if you don't want? But like, how do you like to finish your guns? Oh God, I'm all over the place. Okay, I'm all over. Some of my guns have a, a light epoxy coating. Uh, Actually, I only, have, I only have a couple of guns anymore that I use. Um, my one gun that you saw, it, that white gun, uh-huh. that's that's my 85% of the time, 52-inch 3-band. Um, that's my Baja gun. Um, that one, that one's painted. It's stained white. And then I messed around with the laser engraver and stuff. So, um, But I have my halibut gun. is just oiled. Uh, I don't know. Well, my tuna guns are all on boat guns, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's only a couple of guns that I don't, I have that I don't, you know, people don't use. No, very on cool. The boat and whatnot. That but, makes sense. You know, it's it just varied. I say, it, have fun with it. Have fun with it. Do different stuff. Uh, you know, if you're going to use an acrylic paint on the bottom, then then you have to coat it in epoxy or. Uh, System three has a water based, clear finish that is so freaking hard. That is, like, if you want to put a good, clear, hard finish on a gun, the System 3 stuff. Okay. Literally, you add water to it. Interesting. It's, it, 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 it's mind-blowing how hard it gets. I tried to sand it. I mean, I was like, oh, all right, 150. No. I had to put some 80 grit on it. So it, it gets really hard. Very Better good. than epoxy for coating a gun. Why, um, why do you stay away from mahogany is there a reason for that or you just if it doesn't if it ain't broke don't fix it kind of thing with teak or yeah there's only one word one wood in the world that's meant to be in the ocean all the time teak. yeah there's just so much oil and silica in the gun uh-huh. that that it's not gonna rot it's it's not gonna move like mahogany you ever, you picked up a piece of teak and a piece of mahogany there's a huge difference in the weight right uh, because of all the oils and silica in the uh, in the um, in the wood, uh-huh. teak tears yeah. up your 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 bits and stuff. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'd rather work with teak, just maybe just because I've worked with it so much. But mahogany tears out more; it it chips more. It it's. it's I harder. have noticed that. Too. It's harder to the touch. Mahogany has its place, and like I said, if you're learning how to make a gun, but. I'm a custom gun builder. I want to build you a gun that's going to last you forever. I don't care about any other thing that I know that's tried, true, and tested. One of my clients lost his halibut gun 
uh, out in Point Loma. It was in the water for one year and 10 months. Somebody found it. I cleaned it up. There's nothing wrong with that teak. Parts were rusted, you know, and, and, and corroded and whatnot, but the blank, laminated perfect. Oh, very cool. So very that cool. just makes me feel better of that my process of making the blanks is good. Yeah, and so I kind of look at it too. I'm not a gun builder by, you know, I'm not. <laughs> and if I make a gun, I want to make it so I can hand it off to my son mm -hmm. because I'm only going to make this thing once just because the amount of time. And so if I'm going to do it, I'd rather over-engineer the thing. Um, if you if you make a teak gun properly and you laminate properly and and you do all your steps properly and you take care of that gun, and don't let it get you know weathered and, and dried out. And then there's no reason that gun should last forever. We years ago at one of the lumber places they had a teak that was on the deck of the Ohio battleship during World War II. And me and a buddy made some guns out of it. It's pretty freaking cool. But that teak was from the 30s or 40s when it was cut down on the deck of a battleship, and it made perfect guns. I've heard of similar stories like that, you yeah, know, from the Navy. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the fishing boat, the Royal Polaris here in San Diego, long range, you know, legendary boat. Uh, my nephew run, used to run a sport boat, but he got some railing off of the Royal Polaris. I, I laminated it up last year when I had my shoulder surgery. Uh, him and uh, the kid that used to work for me and my other nephew came out and when I was recovering, I taught them how to build guns. So that was pretty fun. And, and his gun, you know, was, was off the Royal Polaris. So we reused it, and now it's going to live again. Very cool. So Yeah, I do fun. like that whole, like, reduce, reuse kind of thing. Um, yeah. You know, it's good. Especially teak because it's a limited resource, really, and now they're not even well, and, exporting and, the old and, you know, not all teak is created equally. Right. There's only one kind of teak to use. Old growth? Like the well, it's old growth, but yeah. it's only from one region. Right. So when I was in the Middle East um, and Burma, like that, uh, we were so close to that side of the world, you could get it. Burmese teak yeah. is the best teak in the world. I don't know why, but boat builders, gun builders, carpenters have always heard that. So a lot of the teak now are people down in Nicaragua and South America. Well, plantation playing. teak yeah, has plantation. not even half of the oils. It's naughty. It's going to move on you. Um, I, a acquaintance I know was in Indonesia for a while. Oh, man, get this teak made here and get these things laminated up so cheap. And he brought them here and uh, every single one went, what? Yep. African teak is not teak. It's, it's a type of mahogany. You know, so I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. it's it, it's crap to work with too. It's not a good. You don't build a spear gun out of it. I've, I've tried it. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I I use uh, African uh, mahogany, not African teak, but African mahogany and uh -huh. Santo mahogany. If I do stuff, African mahogany is super hard, right? I mean, I think uh, when I was overseas, I went. One of the things I did in my time off was I was making blanks because I was bored, oh, and I went to the wood because everything's so cheap over there. You know, when you're on that wherever you're at in the region of the world, it's like I want to see what's cheap here that I can yeah. bring back. And I went to the lumber 
backyard, you know, and it was like a quarter of the price for teak and African yeah. mahogany. Doesn't have to get shipped around the world, and then you know, it's it, it's only touched two people's hands, not seven people's hands, right? To get here, yeah. And it was funny because it was newer cut teak, so someone had told me, "Oh, you might want to let it dry out a little bit." And I was there for six months, and I hung it in our uh, one of our vans at work. You know? And people were like, what the hell is going on here? I'm like, oh, I got something I'm working on, you know. Uh, but I ended up, by the time the trip, you know, I had it laminated up. And by the time I got home, and it set for a couple of months, and it was ready to go. But, like, it was really cool to go to the lumberyard and somewhere else in the world. What, in what country was that? It was in Bahrain. Oh, in Bahrain. Yeah, yeah. I haven't been there since... 91 it's changed a lot yeah (laughs) it's changed a lot that's wow yeah i think where i was staying in bahrain didn't even exist in 91 i yeah i did port security there for three months in uh okay oh yeah you know yeah what time of year was that uh april so not the hottest but it was hot shamal season though it was hot windy yeah it was windy sand blowing I mean, it was still hot in your in your gear and everything. But yeah, yeah, it wasn't the 120. No, like the summer. I remember that. That was terrible. Yeah, I could stay away from that place for the rest of my life. Yeah, been there, done that. Check. So, um, pretty cool though. I guess it was a good experience. Yeah. So, we've talked about your guns. We've talked about your background and and, and white sea bass and everything in between. I guess, but um, lineage charters. What do you? What's new for you? What are you trying to do this year? Because the season is just going to be starting here shortly. Um, last Ooh, don't year remind was, me. Yeah, last year was like the the land of mahi. That was crazy. Never seen that. Even in the warm water year when I was shooting wahoo at the Coronado Islands yeah. <laughs> in fifteen, was there even close to the amount of dorado? Who knows? That was bizarre. I heard. Thank God because we didn't have crap for yellows last year. Um, you know, we everybody thinks it's. I'm glad you went to this because everybody thinks, oh, the warm water, it's an El Nino. No, it, we've been in a La Nina for three years. We're slowly coming out of it, and you know they're forecast to trans to uh, transfer into a neutral uh, neutral enso. What they call it uh-huh. um, is what like eighty percent of the models are showing. Um, and if any diver should know this, even offshore bluefin diving, you got below 20 feet, it got a lot colder. It's just the warmer water on surface, but below we've had way colder than normal water temps. And people don't realize that because people go on their boat and they see the water temp. Oh my goodness, it's 74 degrees. That's from the sun. That's from radiational heating, you know. So um, hopefully we get into a neutral pattern this year more yellowtail back um the boat we got brand new engines on the boat just wrapping that up that's a that's a huge investment and um i'm excited uh brand new john deers so uh new new top speed might be up there around 18 knots now wow and that boat that's a big boat yeah so um, not that i'm gonna run at 18 (laughs) knots but you know, there's days where I get a call from somebody that's 10 miles away. I, you know, now I can punch it at 15 knots and be there in, you know, 40, 45 minutes yeah. instead of an hour. Um, well, one thing about your, your your kind of niche market is 
You do multi-day trips, right? That's kind of your thing. I your do. Thing. And, and you, you know, you, our, I said our best selling trip is a two and a half, whether you're fishing or diving. Four guys. Um, and it just gives you so much time in the water or fishing, you know, two full days. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I mean, if I didn't own boats and been on the ocean my whole life, that would be awesome to just go out with four guys instead of going on a bigger dive boat with a bunch of people or fishing, you know, with a bunch right. of people. So that that is our niche. Um, you know, I mean, I also, on that same boat, I commercial fish bluefin. You know, so it. I'm always doing something different. You know, we might have one trip, diving trip, and the next two trips are fishing trips. And then I have a space I blocked out for commercial fishing. Then I'm fishing. Then I go back to running three dive trips. You know, so that's what I like is the variety. Right. Um, you know, I mean, electronics, we have all the same electronics that, that big sport boats have on there. Finding fish is not a problem. Um, I... I I think I found the easiest way to put people on bluefin tuna. I, I sometimes I amaze myself at how easy it is, um, but it has to do with electronics and just knowing the behaviors after you know all these years of dealing with the bluefin. Well, do you want to talk about that? Because yeah, it seems like every year they're a little different, or or it's weekly or monthly, hourly sometimes. Yeah, hourly because um, I deal with side scan and all that stuff too at work my real job but um um and then you know there's like there seems like there's like a couple different ways there's uh you know i guess jump going neutral uh checking on the depth sounder jumping in on foamers getting ahead of them go dead in the water uh you know i mean that's pretty much i drive right over the top of them and then you just so how do you do it? Because I've done that with the depth sounder and try to track them. And yeah, them. It, if you're at idle speed and you're in your boat, the biggest thing that's going to scare any fish when you're approaching the is not the throttle. Well, the shifting. It, it's the shifting. It's a sudden sound, but it, what more or less than anything, it's the slapping of the hull. Never approach any school from down downswell if you can if you can help it. At least crosswell, whatever. I've seen it time and time again when the only opportunity I have is to run up swelling it on this spot and I get close and I'm just like, oh, and then all of a sudden I just a good slap on the hull and poof, gone. It, yeah, I, I'll take a breezer, right? And they're just milling on the surface, right? One engine in gear idling right on top of them. They don't even splash. They'll make a few swirls. They swirl down under the boat. They come right under the boat. You know, but most people don't have the patience to actually just go, okay, I'm just going to inch forward. You're going to catch up to them. You know what I mean? But every every minute's different. The vast majority of them nowadays, though, with the sonar, I don't even want a foamer. Because who wants to kick to a, Most people can't kick to a foamer and punch a dive. Right. Maybe yeah. 10% of the spear fishermen can do that. Yeah, you better be in good shape. Really good shape. Um, you know, so most of the time, like smaller boats will be running up to foamers and they'll put them down. That's fine. I'll find them with the sonar and get right on top of them at 60 feet, drop the divers in and they're at 30 feet. Yeah. You know, I mean, the foamer is the tip of the iceberg. That's people. Yeah. Yeah. But those fish are, are, are 
are focused mm-hmm. on something else. Yeah. Does that make sense? They're not just relaxing or just swimming. They're just crushing bait. Trying to yeah. Bait. So, yeah. and they're swimming faster. It's going to be harder to shoot one. There's more shit going on. People just get, you know, everybody comes out on trips with these grander dreams, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes they happen and, and other times they don't, you know, you can't. One thing I've learned in the last, you know, six years is it's, it's, it's sometimes it's really hard on your, not your ego, but your self-confidence because you're like, man, I put these people in front of a bunch of fish. Nobody shot anything. But there's nothing I can do. All I can do on a dive trip is give you the best opportunity. And whether you follow my instruction or, you know, somebody else's instruction um, is up to you and, and, you know, to close the deal. Um, But so many people come out and whether it's their excitement or whatever, they just they can't seem to follow a few simple directions that will give them the opportunity. And what would those directions be? Or, or I guess there's well, depends on, my, on the situation. On my boat, yeah. And like I said, ninety-five percent of the time, I hit a buzzer. That means you go into the water and you dive as immediately. It doesn't mean you slide into the water and you fix your snorkel and your mask and take a couple breaths and waste thirty seconds because the fish are gone. The thing is, is bluefin are very, all tuna are very inquisitive, and they're inquisitive of a boat. They're like, oh, what is that? You know, they, they like to come under the boat, whether it's for a couple minutes or an hour, you know, in your chumming or whatever. But it's, I get them under the boat. I have to make that call as the operator as I'm running the boat when to send the people. I'm not 100%, you know. I mean, it looks like a good school. I send them and then it peters out. Right. Um, but so many times you, I, I watch these people, they slide into the water and they're just, they're fucking with their stuff and their gear's not right. And a few guys have really perfected it. They stand on my swim step and it's huge on my boat. And they stand and they literally take a dip breath and dive straight in. They hold their mask and their guns out in front of them and they dive straight in into the water. And those guys are always shooting fish. Because as I come over that school, those fish are like looking up. They see a diver coming down, they get inquisitive. So many times I mark fish at 100 feet, they meet the divers at 50, 40 feet. I mark them at 60 feet, they're meeting the divers at 30 feet, 20 feet. That's been my experience the whole time. You could pretty much cut it in half no matter where they're at. Not every time, but, but you know, if you get in at the right time and they see you and they're a little inquisitive, then they're going to come to you, you know. But, but if somebody doesn't get down there soon enough, the school is just going to keep going. Right. And then, you know, because you were on the surface, dilly dallying, messing with your stuff, you know. Taking that one last breath. I've got a guy that's been coming out for five years with me. And he's, last year, he was, he's 73 now. Last year, I got him 110-pound tuna. Nice. That was, that was probably one of my highlights last year. That feels good. Because, yeah. God, I hope that at 72, I can still be doing that. No, I agree with you 100%. That's the inspiration. And that guy didn't even start diving until he was 50 years old. Good for him. You know? So um, that's what I get out of out of running trips now is I've shot enough fish. I don't care. I, I just get so much enjoyment of watching people have such a good time. Because as I've gotten older, I, I realize, you know, I, I live on the water. It's not something new to me. Like people come out on one or two trips a year, you know. I've realized like that's such a special time for them. I want to make, you know, I want to do everything to make it happen for them. 
No, I think anybody, like as I worked on the water for years too, I think I completely understand what you mean. It's not, the novelty for us isn't there for a certain, you know, it's got to be a pretty unique day to be like, holy crap. For me, for more importantly, like other people go out, you just change their life with a 15 pound yellowtail. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, last year I had a, a buddy of mine, he passed away, um, it's about a, about a little over a year ago. Big way surfer was surfing Kodos, had a house down in Baja, was coming back and um, got in a car wreck in Baja and, and, and passed away. His girlfriend bought, brought his her son out this year, who spearfishes a little bit, you know? And he got like a 20-pound bluefin. I got him on a 20-pound bluefin. That was just amazing. That, hey, it tastes, tastes better, man. You know, yeah. that just that, that 15 year old kid, that was his birthday present. You Good know, and, and, and I, I taught Jeff, the kid who passed away. I mean, I'll call him kid, he's 38, 40 years old, but I, you know, I mentored him at fishing and spearfishing. So it was really cool that his girlfriend, you know, brought her out. And he's like, I, you know, it, I want you to teach him, you know. So it's cool that he was able to get a, get a fish that day. And, and I mean, that made his year. I think that's the coolest thing about having the skill set that you have. Anybody out there that has a unique skill set to be able to share that with others is such a cool uh, position to be in. And I have, you know, I have some groups, like, you know, whether it's fishing or diving, might catch one fish. And it was the best day of their year. And that's the people I enjoy because no matter what, anybody who knows me, there's, you're not going to find very many people with more of a passion. For this stuff than I do, and and the drive to like just find fish, you know, and 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 do whatever. But it's I don't know where I'm going. It's it's it, oh, it's such a you can't fake really loving this because it anybody that's done it is a ton of work. But I it, I you know and and I feel so bad. Like I did everything I could to catch these people some fish, and not and not nothing's cheap anymore, right? You know, I mean, yeah. I don't come from money. I was, raised in a very poor family so i understand like hey you're selling out some money i try to keep my prices as low so i can try to make a living yeah and people can you know can go fishing but it's it it's just that i feel so bad on my own psyche like after a hard day of fishing but there's nothing i can do right i've i've had those days you know um but it, it it's it's awesome to see those days when and there was a special thing, and these, I mean, it was just the best day for these people. And it, it, there was just no no special fish. No, they had a great day. They caught a fish or two. Yeah. And they're like, "Wow, I didn't deal with my phone for a day. I didn't, you know." Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of people can't just step away like you or I go out on the water and right. turn everything off. Yeah. Yeah. Well. I guess I want to kind of end with this question. Uh -huh. With all your experience, I mean, you've been, I mean, like you said, ball in the late 70s and 80s and all that stuff just with your life. And, and I've seen it in my experience a little bit, but I can't imagine what you're like. Is this change in the culture, is the culture change like spearfishing or, or just fishing in general? How do you think? Like the culture, what is your opinion, and or and how many ways, how many different types of ways has the culture switched from, um, you know, from whatever it was back then to now, especially with social media, and do you think it's a good or a bad thing, or indifferent? 
Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, you know, it's it's harder to explore places like we did back before technology because you didn't have Google Earth, you didn't have all these you know ways to find stuff out. Um, so that's why I think that's why places get ruined quicker than normal. Just somebody told somebody, and somebody told somebody, and it grew from there. Yeah. Social media, um, I don't, you know, I, I have a, a love-hate relationship. I <laughs> do, I don't even deal with my own social media. I have a, a younger gentleman. Right, we know him, yeah. And um, Derek, and yeah, I, I, Derek. <laughs> yeah I, I personally, I can't stand social media. I could never go on it again and be just as fine. Um, but it's the, the age we live in, and we have to do it. You have a business, yeah, and so it, it, it's a yeah, it's a love hate relationship for me because there's some good things that come out of social media, but I think there's a lot of stuff that isn't good out of social media. As in, people don't take the time to learn things. I don't think they might know how to do something, but they don't understand how to do it. And there's a huge difference of understanding how to do something and doing something, if that makes sense. So yeah. with, with YouTube and all this, there's so much FOMO. Everybody's got FOMO. Oh, my God. There's, oh, my God, the yellow teller bite. Oh, my God, I got to post it right now. Oh, my God. And then, you know, a thousand people are out there the next day. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. It's just the age we live in. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm just old. That's and, weird, and, man, because there's a group of guys like – you're kind of damned and you do, and you're damned if you don't. Like, I could give two shits about being the face of anything or, or even having social media. I've met a lot of really cool friends from social media, um, which has been great because anytime you go anywhere in the world, it's like, oh, I got a hookup or I, I can hook my friends up here. But, um, you know, and, it, and it's a great platform to share and mentor people that way. In the beginning of so internet and social media, back when there was, you know, uh, the spearing foreman or what, what was that old forum that was on there uh, uh, 20 years ago? Yeah. Spirit. But you know what? Yeah, that was, yeah, yeah. that was, you know, we didn't have the Instagram and the, the whole in, instant, you know, gratification. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. People were connecting. I mean, there was drama and shit just like social, <laughs> social media, but, but yeah. it was still of people were hooking up together and people had mentors and whatnot. I don't see I don't see mentorship if you I don't know what you call it, but yeah. I don't see a lot of people getting into the sport um, and I don't see having mentors and I don't see people willing to put work forth to obtain their goal. So that's one thing I've gotten more uh, messages about. Hey, what about this and that? I was like, well, it seems like you're kind of like. Fishing. You're, you're, you're going a little too fast. I mean, there's other things before that that need to happen. It's like, how do I shoot a 200-pound bluefin? Well, let's start with a Sargo. Well, <laughs> well I get people there. come out on the boat, right? Yeah. And, and you know what? If you want to come try a dive, you know, dive on tuna, that's, that's your own prerogative, you know. But I, these people have not even, and never even shot a yellowtail. And, and want to go shoot a tuna, not that... There's no difference in shooting a 20 pound yellow and 20 pound tuna, but if you're diving for a 100 pound tuna or bigger, even 80, 50 pound tuna will drown you in a heartbeat. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I've had 20 pound yellows that fight really hard that no matter how hard I kicked, I got pulled under. Um, but that's, that's what's the social media thing. You know, I, 
if you, and I've always preached this, I rarely ever took, I don't like photos of myself taken. I don't have to take a picture of a fish to remember it for my own life. Um, and if you look through my social media stuff, I, that's why I videoed a lot because people are like, no, you have to be on social media. Okay, well, I don't want me on social media. Yeah. So I'm going to put videos because that's what it pertains to. Right. I don't care about a picture of somebody holding a fish. Yeah. I'll, maybe somebody can actually dissect my video and go, oh, that's how he's shooting big calicos. Or, you know what I mean? I'll throw it out there. Maybe somebody wants to do their homework and, you know, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't want people knowing what I'm doing. <laughs> I know. I don't want people knowing yeah. what I'm doing on the water unless I tell them. I had a, a friend of mine, actually a, a cousin who was – pretty popular on social media and she's like you need to get in front of the camera more brett and i was like i i understand why because there are people that do like want to have that connection yeah um you know i i yeah but then i feel like it'd be disingenuous it would be very genuine if i was doing it for the sake of just being in front of the camera like that's not really who me i've learned in the last five years to to be more out in the public, yeah. I'm just not a public person. Right. As in, I'm not, you and I sitting here, yeah, there's a microphone, I'm comfortable there. I don't like getting up in front of a lot of people. Sure. Uh, that's just not me. I'm, I'm just, I'm, the guy who just wants to go over there and run the boat and, and yeah, at the end fish. of the day, the end of the day, go, good job, buddy. Right. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't care about likes. I don't care about followers. I care about being on the water and having fun. So, yeah, um, yeah. Social media, I, I don't know. Well, that's a long conversation. That I, I think it takes a bit of maturity, and I think I have found you have to constantly check yourself. Why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Why am I getting validation? Uh, if someone says, "Hey, you're great," well, why do I do I? Am I doing this to be a validation? And if so, why the fuck do I care? <laughs> Shit, people. Yeah. Oh, your guns are so beautiful. I like blush on the inside. You know. I'm like, oh yeah. I'm like, oh thanks. You know. I mean. Yeah. They are. They are. They yeah. are beautiful. Though. <laughs> They're beautiful, but I, I over beauty. I think the best, most important thing is that the function. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can. I've seen Frankenstein guns that shoot great. That look like I hell. A, I have another one. And that's all, you know what, that's all that matters. But No, that's, Colin Smith told me that. He's like, as long as you got a straight track, Brett, and you can, you know, a big enough thing. People ask me all the time, what's the best gun on the market? Best gun is the one you shoot best. Bottom line, doesn't matter who makes it. It could right. be an A.B. Miller. Yeah. If you're deadly with that A.B. Miller, that's the best gun for you. Right. Not Does that make agree. sense? Yeah, it makes sense. You know? It's I, supposed to be about... And that's the weird thing with the industry. To me, it was supposed to be about shooting fish, spending time in the ocean, not name brand stuff. Because I have seen like a lot of this, the surfing kind of culture come into spearfishing where oh. it's like, oh, I got rife this or rife that. Nothing against rife. But like, this, so it's all very like, oh, what wetsuit or, you know, name brand this and name brand that. And it's like the guys that I knew that mentored me in diving were the dudes like, at Home Depot buying shit to like build your stuff in your garage. Used to, and they're I used to buy cocktails. clear float line from Home Depot and we, you know, we make our own float lines. Yeah, I still do. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a different world. We'll see where it goes in the next few years. Yeah. Hopefully, think... hopefully there's still fish to shoot and catch. Oh, um, 
you know, just remember out there, fresh fish is better. So, you, you, you know, you don't have to take the whole ocean with you anymore. No, I, that's a great, that's a great thing, a message to end on too. You so. know. Um, you know, and, and I'm guilty of it myself back in the day, you know, it was the mentality of it couldn't run out, you know, yeah. um, but we've all seen it. It does run out. And, um, you know, there are limits. We might not all agree with them, but there's, there's limits for a reason. And, you know, I, I don't want to harvest a fish if it's not going to eat good. Right. You know, and, uh, with that, whether, whether you're on my boat, we take care of fish. I mean, that's one of our top priorities, but whatever you're doing, take care of your fish. Can't stand to see. People leave these big fish sitting out on the deck for hours. Oh, it was biting. So, one person stop and deal with that fish so it's in proper, you know, right. a lot of meat. So, I think it's a. I see a lot of fish go to waste just because people overcatch and then it doesn't get packaged right. And then so much of it goes in the trash. It's, it's, a, it's a shame. Right. You know? I think too, it's not necessarily I mean, maturity. It's easy to say maturity, but I think it's personal growth. Yeah, like you know, you just spend time. You just kind of get used to it and grow. And like we were talking about before we started filming, like what, the way I thought maybe twenty years ago, I don't necessarily think that now. You know? Oh no. So it's uh, yeah, I, you know, it's just just personal growth and fishing in general, animals. Um, Understanding the environment that you're in. Yeah. You know, and and I don't care what anybody says sportsmen whether you're fishing diving hunting whatever do way more for the environment than any environmental group has ever done with ducks unlimited and, and all the conservation that we put forth so that we're going to have something um and we need to keep doing that I, and, we, and we need to be proactive so they don't take it away from us i could not so, agree more <laughs> uh, and, and and in closing last thing is your spear fishing don't do something to somebody else that you wouldn't want, you know, back to the jumping on somebody's patty or somebody's diving a bed or a spot, you know, don't go anchor on them. Go find your own freaking fish. It's going to be more satisfying. Yeah. So. And uh, if you want to go offshore this summer, hit up Matt. At hit Lindy's me up. Charters. For sure. Um, I can speak secondhand of the uh, service that he provides. Um, I have seen him talk to a lot of guys in the community that have been around a long time and I haven't heard a bad thing about him. He's an old salt, but, uh, he puts you on some fish. And, uh, so, and again, thanks Matt for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And, um, yeah, the more of these I do, the more I like. Yeah, that's cool. It's just yeah, chatting. Just chatting. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I hope we all see some of you guys on the water and, um, if not have fun, safe dive. Yeah, what's your Instagram? Lineage Charters, Charters and Captain Bly Spear Guns. Okay. Um, yeah, my phone number's on both of them. Perfect. It's the boat phone number, it's the gun phone number. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. All right, buddy. Yeah. Thanks. All right, that concludes the show for today. Thank you, Matt, for being a guest on the show and swinging by my house. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. It was uh, live in person. I, I did enjoy making it. It's a little more personal that way. Um, uh, although the audio is maybe not quite as good, just the fact I live under a flight path, so that's always good times. But one of these days I'll have my own studio. Anyways, um, I hope you guys enjoyed. If you did, please let me know. Send me a text message or send me a message on Instagram. Um, and just let me know if you liked it. If you didn't, if the audio sucked and you don't want to hear that ever again, let me know. But I hope you guys 
Uh, have a great week and take care. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. Join Waypoint TV's Great Outdoors Month celebration presented by Battery Tender every Tuesday and Sunday in June from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Enjoy fishing and hunting content that will inspire you to get outside, but also to take action in preserving the land and water that allows us to do what we love most. Tuesdays and Sundays in June starting at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment 